21st century presidential candidates typically rely on playlists of unaltered popular songs to provide a sonic backdrop to their rallies and stops on the campaign trail. Now departed Republican candidate Ted Cruz often selected country tunes, including Aaron Tippin's Where the Stars and Stripes and the Eagle Fly, Brooks and Dunn's Only in America, and Montgomery Gentry's Where I Come From. Hillary Clinton takes the dais to Katy Perry's feminist anthem, Roar, and exits to Rachel Platten's Ode to Female Self-Affirmation fight song. Donald Trump takes the stage to Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World, and so does Bernie Sanders. Is it strange that these two candidates, who clearly stand on the opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, have gravitated towards the same tune? Perhaps not. The semantic openness of popular songs allows for a broad range of interpretations. Presidential candidates use the perpetually shifting and contested terrain that these songs provide as a blank space upon which they can construct their own identities, narratives, and visions of America's past, present, and future. But Sanders and Trump do not just share the same walk-on song, they also both draw on the imagery and rhetoric of populism, and this extends to their respective campaign soundtracks. Today, Justin Patch, adjunct assistant professor of music at Vassar College, and Matthew Jordan, associate professor in the Department of Film, Video, and Media Studies at Penn State University, will join the staff at Tracks on the Trail to discuss the competing definitions of populism that have defined the 2016 election and how they play out against the campaign's musical soundscape. This is Cannon McLean for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. And now for the news. First today, we have some news from the ghosts of presidential campaigns past. It appears that even though Mike Huckabee's bid for presidency is over, he has gotten into some trouble over his use of Survivor's Eye of the Tiger at a 2015 rally in support of Kim Davis, the Kentucky county clerk who refused to issue marriage licenses. The candidate was sued for unlawful usage and settled with the plaintiff. Speaking of which, let's continue with the latest installment of musicians lashing out at Donald Trump. <laughs> Queen guitarist Brian May has added his name to the ever-growing list of angry artists who found their songs used by the Trump campaign without permission. Will Trump be legally chastised for this? Will he even care? Tune in next time to find out. Spoiler alert, the answer is probably no. Now that we are deep into election season, any number of people, both at home and abroad, have used their musical chops to comment on the candidates. The rapper Mac Miller, who got into some legal trouble with Donald Trump over a 2011 song that bears his name, has now released a dub of the candidate rapping the song's lyrics in connection with a reissue of his mixtape Best Day Ever. The video was created by Cloud District Media and Mac Miller's label Rostrum Records. And on the other end of the genre spectrum, Dutch experimental composer Jacob TV recently staged the latest version of his open-ended multimedia opera entitled The News at Santa Monica Broad Stage. The opera, which splices together numerous snippets of media into one musical work, recently added Donald Trump to its roster of world leaders and news anchors. The remixed voices are framed with music The Guardian's Jacob Brief describes as 
a delirious postmodern melange of minimalism, pop, rock, and jazz. And if you're looking for something both humorous and a little bit frightening, check out Funnier Die's I Had a Dream music video. You'll see what we mean. Yeah, I had a dream, and here's how it went. I dreamed that the Trumpster was the president. His little finger on the button, he was doing his thing. Our new national anthem was my ding-a-lang. We were born and sold. And if you really want to get involved with candidates and music, Hillary Clinton has offered the opportunity to enter and win a night out with her at Lin-Manuel Miranda's hit Broadway musical, Hamilton. And that's all the news from this edition of the Tracks on the Trail podcast. song What About the Children by African-American gospel singer Yolanda Adams, which does not refer to the election, yet illustrates a central question for a particular group of voters. Since the departure of evangelical Ted Cruz from the field of Republican candidates on May 3rd, those religious authorities who would identify themselves as Bible-believing, born-again Christians have been comparatively quiet on the issue of endorsing any candidate. After a less than uplifting meeting with black pastors in late November, Trump in June renewed his attempts to convince white evangelical leaders of his Christianity, which yielded the endorsement of Jerry Falwell. Given the relative silence on the part of the community of Christian believers then, the endorsement of Hillary Clinton by one of its more prominent musician members sent shockwaves throughout the faith-based electorate, which is this month's musical anomaly. Upon Clinton's success in California and her designation as presumptive Democratic nominee, award-winning African-American gospel singer Yolanda Adams named the number one gospel artist of the last decade by Billboard magazine, wrote a message of congratulations on Facebook, and I quote her here. Today is a day of historic significance because once again we make history as a country. Congrats to Democratic nominee Secretary Hillary Clinton. God's best to you, me dear. That was not the most direct endorsement, but enough for her followers to revile Adams in the court of public opinion, to the extent that they even questioned her Christianity. Adams chose not to respond to fellow believers who expressed their discontent on social media, and it should be noted that she's received quite a few positive messages and related expressions of support in the aftermath. The anomaly of a born-again Christian artist supporting Clinton reflects the complexities of electoral politics in the United States. For Adams, the historical moment for women mattered more than the issue of abortion, as she clearly risked her reputation in making a statement. Looming over the various critiques are issues of race, gender, and even musicality. After all, what does she know? She's only a musician. As the elections draw near, it will be interesting to observe what role artist endorsements play and how the religious right might mobilize its forces to respond to any other voice that does not tow its dogmatic line. 
Signing off for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College, this is James DeVille from Carleton University. on deconstructing the populism, music on the campaign trail, 2012 and 2016. This is Justin Patch from Vassar College for Tracks in the Trail at Georgia College. There's perhaps no better phrase that defines this election cycle in the U.S. and perhaps also the EU better than a return of populism. Populism in the U.S. broadly defined as an appeal to the people against established powers, social structures, and hegemonic ideologies and values bubbled to the surface in the wake of the so-called Great Recession. The despair, fear, and frustration of citizens fomented competing political ideologies and brought these conflicts into the fiery cauldron of the campaign. With foreclosure, unemployment, debt, and declining prospects in existential reality, populist ideas from both the left and the right gained traction. These ideas pitted progressive against conservative populism in a uniquely 21st century context of mass media and popular culture. Popular music participates in essential functions of democracy, performing and pedagogizing the electorate and inventing the people. Listening to the music of democracy is as essential to understanding it as reading its histories. Popular music, through its familiarity and flexibility, is capable of embodying both the partisan and the nation. It temporarily resolves contradictions in the unstable formations between hegemonic and marginal groups and creates an affect that is both timeless and modern by constructing and narrating a mythical past and a utopian future. Analysis of the political efficacy of culture are acts of self-realization. They inform us of our relationship to music and make less opaque the effects of music on our political senses. Their stories must also be included in democratic histories. Jacques Attali states that in modernity, music is the monologue of power, the constant enunciation of industrial capital and the culture industry. Following Attali's dictum to lend an ear to music so as to better understand power and potential, Listening to the forms and formations of 2012 and 2016's political music tells us the prehistory of the populism that is now pervasive in popular ideology and in the current campaign. And the relationship between music, populist rhetoric, and power on the campaign trail. What lies at the intersection of campaign uses of popular music and populism is a complex mass of operations, attempts at creating effective links reinforcing collected identities, creating new identities, and a constant contents to create the people. As historian Edmund Morgan tells us, at the birth of democracy, there was a need to create a people, to define national culture, needs, and visions, in such a way that the many could be ruled by the few. David Hume observed that this task is more easily accomplished than it should be, and that it is often accomplished through the manipulation of opinion. Hume also noted that opinion is manipulated by emotion. In these calculations that ripple across crowds of supporters, the airwaves, and the internet, music is often a catalyst. A close examination of the campaign music, populist policies and ideologies, and historical links between late 19th and early 21st century populism illuminates the cultural work that politicized music does or attempts to do and puts the race of 2016 into broader historical context and raises questions about music's role in future campaigns. Contemporary popular music culture is embedded in this process and was a key component of the nascent populism of 2012. Currently, we see it front and center in 2016. Leading up to the 2012 campaign, Competing ideas of populist policies manifested in the Tea Party on the right and the Occupy movement on the left. 
while both of these umbrella ideologies had contradictions and mutually distrustful factions, which demonstrated the breadth of populist politics. Their impact on the policies, rhetoric, and cultural expressions of both sides was clearly felt. For the Romney campaign, the nativism, isolationism, rugged individualism, jingoistic nationalism, and valorization of white working class culture of the Tea Party ideology manifested itself in Romney's choice of Kid Rock's Born Free as a campaign song. I don't want no one to cry, but tell them if I don't survive. The any voice should be heard ideology of the Occupy movement was also partially echoed in the Obama campaign's mixtape, which also repeated some of the shortfalls of the Occupy movement. In 2012, country music was the key ground on which Romney labored to convince voters of his conservatism, patriotism, and dedication to a nervous, vulnerable middle class and an angry working class. For Romney, Born Free embodied major gaps in his campaign persona and communicated to his supporters on the level of ideology and affect. Contemporary popular music was also the plane on which Obama met a divided and disheartened electorate and appealed for another four years to finish the project of repair, restoration, recovery, and redemption. The Obama campaign largely abandoned the soundtrack of 2008, marked by Stevie Wonder's Sign Seal Delivered, Yes We Can by John Legend and Will I Am, and Brooks and Dunn's Only in America. The 27 song 2012 mixtape ran the gamut of radio appropriate pop, containing healthy doses of Nashville country, classic soul, adult contemporary, and inspirational songs. Conspicuously missing were hip hop, electronic, and Latin artists, save for Ricky Martin and rock artists long associated with Democratic campaigns. In the current campaign, we hear both parties working with popular music to accomplish a number of populist projections. As an accompaniment to Donald Trump's nativist, protectionist, pugnacious rhetoric, his campaign music is both incredibly mundane, featuring an amalgamation of classic rock, Broadway hits, and the famous aria Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot, and played on repeat at high volumes. His deployment of popular music is both familiar and numbing, creating a bond between himself and his base of frustrated and disaffected conservatives who feel alienated from the government and troubled by the direction they perceive the country to be moving. His populist policies and ideologies are framed by sounds of an American golden age of the late 1970s and 1980s. Hillary Clinton's campaign is also using pop music to its advantage as well. In particular, Clinton has embraced the much maligned woman card since clinching the nomination. But before this, she released a 30-track all-female mixtape for Women's History Month, which included tracks by chart-topping artists like Katy Perry, Beyonce, Sia, Shania Twain, and Lady Gaga, as well as the Schuyler sisters from the Broadway smash Hamilton. Clinton's playlists frequently target young listeners, although her recent campaign stops featured, of all things, music by John Philip Sousa. By featuring contemporary artists who are household names or are in rotation with younger listeners or background playlists. She has generally abandoned her playlist from 2008, which included Celine Dion, Tom Petty, and Aretha Franklin. Listening back to the mixtape from 2012 with 2016's ears, I detect a hint of the surgical execution of politics that seeps from the Clinton campaign. While political campaigns are all games of calculation, successful campaigns are able to play on spontaneity in the guise of listening and allowing voices and narratives from the periphery to proliferate through the PA. While Obama's oratory was able to sway voters, his musical selections hinted at forgetting youth, particularly urban, educated, and youth of color, in favors of policies aimed at Main Street, the suburbs, baby boomers, 
and maintaining an economic system that is making enemies, particularly among young voters who came of age in the long shadow of the recession. This critical silencing came to fruition with Clinton, who has struggled to connect culturally and politically with young, well-educated voters whose support will continue to be critical in a closely divided country. The politics of inclusion demand more than tokenism and may punish erasure. 2012 also marked a new era in the political process that 2016 continued to build on. With the vast amounts of money spent on the creation of a national campaign networks that understand and exploit locality is a distinct possibility that, in the wake of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, that a single suite of political issues may never again be accompanied by a singular musical representation. With the growth of super PACs and available information to finally target advertising, multiple ways to exploit social media, and the proliferation of news and commentary outlets, campaigns will become octopi, with multiple tentacles meant to grasp specific audiences through locally relevant or single-issue policies accompanied by different musics. 2012 may have seen a final dramatic conjoining of populist policy and musical culture, a high modern attempt at crafting a singular musical political nationalism before postmodern campaigning embraces the fragmentation of the electorate and gives up on the project of creating a singular unified people. Populism will no doubt live on in a postmodern guise that is yet to be revealed, but there is little doubt that it will be accompanied by the siren song of popular music. As we can see from the track listings on tracks on the trail, the uses of popular music in this cycle alone are widely varied and will likely continue to be in the future. It is also worth noting an ironic switch that has occurred in the 2016 campaigns. With the successful insurgent candidacy of Donald Trump, there is increasing unease and wrangling about the GOP, who and what it represents. The coalition between religious and social conservatives, Tea Party, libertarians, isolationists, imperialists, small government, Second Amendment hawks, anti-tax activists, and fiscal conservatives is frank. More than playing identity politics, as Romney did, the GOP needs to play at the politics of coalition inclusion. Perhaps Donald Trump should re-examine the politics of the mixtape that go beyond his normal classic rock and Broadway-centered sounds. On the other hand, Hillary Clinton now needs to connect with young voters and working-class white men who see no political or cultural connection to her and certainly feel no enthusiasm for her. Clinton's campaign needs to reach out at the level of cultural resonance and similitude that Romney attempted to. Perhaps the Clinton campaign needed to find its theme not in a mixtape, but in a strong statement of solidarity with solution-based young, anxious voters who are tired of identity politics that perform erasure and neglect intersectional and holistic solutions. The Clinton campaign needs a strong, distinct anthem through which to perform unification. But more than these, her campaign needs to do a better job of simply listening. I'm Justin Patch for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. Tracks on the Trail. You just heard Dr. Justin Patch sharing his insight on the ways in which populist ideals are articulated through music on the 2016 presidential campaign trail. Joining us today with Dr. Patch are Tracks on the Trail co-editor, Dr. James DeVille, professor of music at Carleton University in Ottawa, and Dr. Matthew Jordan, associate professor in the Department of Film, Video, and Media Studies at Penn State University. Dr. Jordan's work focuses on jazz and French cultural identity, American infotainment news shows, and music in the 2008 Barack Obama campaign. I am Dr. Dana Gorzalani Mostak, Assistant Professor of Music at Georgia College and creator and co-editor of Tracks on the Trail. Thank you everyone for joining us via Skype today. I'd like to start the round of questions with one for Justin. Uh, do you really feel that candidates want people to listen? It seems like the kind of uh, populism that they're advocating, the identity they're constructing for the public, is one that involves a superficial consumption of music through a combination of, let's say, singer-celebrity, song title, the chorus words, and maybe a catchy tune that's identified with the song. 
They're not really interested in the details of environmental degradation or American social decline that Neil Young gives us in the verses of Rockin' in the Free World, for example. And Trump seems to want himself to be associated with the powerful, ostensibly anti-socialist, yet ultimately polyvalent phrase of the chorus of that song. What do you think? All right, so there's a lot in there to unpack. So I'm going to start out with the the listening part and sort of move through it. So as far as listening goes, I, I get the feeling that what we see with political campaigns and their use of music has a lot to do with the way that we all listen to music. And uh, John Seabrook, in his fantastic book, The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory, spends a lot of time talking about the hook. And the hook is what we think of as the chorus, right? And the chorus is usually what campaigns want to use. And of course, Rockin' in the Free World being a, an example, another example from this campaign is Donald Trump started out using It's the End of the World as We Know It. Uh, in 2012, Hillary Clinton started using American Girl and Every Little Thing She Does is Magic, which have parts in the song that are a little bit, well, frankly, very sexual in nature that you probably don't want to be campaigning on. And then it, it, the, the, sort of the classic example is Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which ends up in all sorts of places that it shouldn't. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the songwriting industry makes it so that the hook is put front and center it's what people are made to listen to. That's why it's called the hook. It's what hooks people. It's what gets you into the song. It's the thing you remember. And, and oftentimes, as Rockin' in the Free World is an example of this, the subtlety, the, the critique, the, the specifics of the song that are embedded in the verses are, are often overlooked. And so I think what you have are campaigns in the public are listening to music in this very industry-centered way which is how we end up with songs that seem misused in political campaigns. So that's, that's the first part of that, is I think it has a lot to do with the way that we listen to popular music. The second part about this, and you see this really front and center with uh, the Brexit vote that just happened, is that politics becomes about um, consumption not about pedagogy. There's a, if, if you think about really pure democracy in its theoretical state, early theorists of democracy talked about educating and you go out and you educate people about the issues so that they can make a well-informed decision. And looking at the campaigns, uh, basically in my lifetime, what we see is a real, like nobody's going out there and actually doing the tough work of teaching an electorate about what the issues really are. Um, and so because of this, we have this reversion to the idea of consuming through politics rather than learning through politics. And I think that's where we get to the point where you're using music as you would in the advertising industry to advertise a product to shape the image of a product, and that particular product is the image of a politician rather than the substance of their campaign or the substance of their ideology. I have a question for both Justin and Matt. For both of you, your work primarily focuses on what types of pre-existing popular songs the candidates use you know, to construct these, I don't know, these sort of utopian American narratives. And Justin, you also mentioned how music is used to sort of smooth over, you know, the contradictions between center and periphery in American life. But I also want to mention another trend here. So since 2008, we really have sort of witnessed this sort of democratization of the soundscape, you know, as we have social media platforms, we have playlisting sites like Spotify, you know, video sharing sites like YouTube. And, you know, these really encourage user participation, your know, user invention and, and interactivity, if you will. And in 2015, 2016 alone, at Tracks in the Trail, um, we've documented, you know, thousands of candidate-themed Spotify playlists, tribute videos, newly composed songs and parodies. And these are all, of course, created, um, you know, just by the general public. So I was hoping you could comment on how the rhetoric of populism has influenced you know, not only how the candidates use music, but also how the public participates in music during campaign season 
and how it shapes their roles as creators, not just listeners? Well, I would say there's a, there's a couple things. I mean, first, we would probably want to say what we mean by the rise of populism. Um, I think what we see recently, and this is, I think, the case in the Brexit, uh, as well as in Donald Trump, you see kind of a, what we would call a neo-populist, which is populism as a uh, political logic that is aiming to unify people to make some kind of demand as if is being used as a kind of ready-made political affect. Uh, so that, and I think Justin was on to something when he, he was talking about the way that this is linked to consumerism uh, and a kind of shallow uh, mnemonic, right, where this popular music serves as a kind of a, uh, a hook to the individual subject consuming it. Um, consumer culture has figured out very effectively that one of the best ways to link consumers to their product effectively is to pull them into the production. So we often talk in media studies about prosumer culture, right? Where the consumer is not just the consumer, but also the producer of media content. But what cons uh, advertising and uh, people who produce movies and other things have realized that uh, it very effectively pulls people into identification with something when they're the producers of this. And we've seen uh, essentially, the political campaigns invite people to be a part of their campaigns in this way because once you start being invested in the process, you're uh, not only helping to promote it, but you're also kind of giving it a, uh, a kind of the veneer of a populist authenticity, right? It seems to be emanating from the people, not just coming from uh, top down, which has always been the critique of mass culture. So these tribute videos... Um, Oftentimes, they're using a song that has kind of been chosen by the campaigns, or at least vetted by the campaigns, and the, the, the video of it that you see with it is the thing that is produced by the people, and then the, sometimes they're cleverly edited together. Uh, again, making it seem as what you're seeing is an aggregate of a bunch of people doing things, you know, which in a way is uh, very much what the populist aesthetic and logic is all about. The illusion or, or the appearance of a people unifying under some kind of coherent uh, idea. But in, uh, as Justin said, I think these, the identifications are largely superficial along the lines that consumer culture wants them to be superficial. Consumer culture kind of works metonymically, that we displace our identification of one thing onto the next thing. Uh, so pop music depends on this kind of identification. So this month's Katy Perry song, next next month we'll identify with the Taylor Swift song. The month after that, there'll be some new star that'll be effectively occupying that space. And our identification with it just slips onto the next thing. And I think this is what's happening with politics as well. So short-term memory, short-term identification. But this kind of tribute video is a way of pulling people into this process as well. So building on what Matt just said about putting people into the, the process of making politics, even if it is at a superficial level, I think when we enter the, the end of the modern era, so when we think about the modern era and democracy, we are looking almost explicitly at the idea of being ruled by elites. Right Again, I'll go back to Edmund Morgan talking about the early American and early British democracies really felt like they were ruled by those among them who were superior. Now, obviously, there's a lot of class, gender, and racial politics that are written into the idea of who are the elites among the people. This breaks down basically when we get into civil rights and we find that when we start electing black folks and brown folks and women into office, this idea really breaks down because there is this underlying assumption that black folks and women can't be elite, they can't be my boss, that really throws Congress for a serious loop that is yet to recover from. And there's a really great short article in The Atlantic about how infrastructure has really ceased to get done since the diversification of Congress. And the, the author sort of theorizes that there's this lack of trust in between these different groups that are, that are taking seats at the Capitol after the late 1950s. So when you no longer have the rule 
of the many by the elites, you have the idea that everybody participates, sort of like the critique of blogs, where everybody becomes a journalist and quality control sort of goes out the window when anybody can have an opinion. And so I think the sort of postmodern democracy that we find ourselves in is where everybody wants a seat at the table, not as listeners, but as speakers. And it so happens that technology enables this kind of echo chamber and that the idea of being able to speak as part of the democratic process is a very powerful notion. And just when that's taking root, you have the Internet, you have YouTube and Spotify and all of these other things that enable people to make political music or to politicize their own music by labeling it in that way and then to share it. And I think it's been interesting, some of the studies that have been done with Facebook now that do reinforce the idea of Facebook being a bit of a political echo chamber because you only get postings from people you're connected to and we tend to be connected to people who are like us. So then we end up getting political information from people who think the same way that we do. And I think it's you have this really perfect storm of sort of ideology and technology that come together that give this, like what Matt talks about, is this populist veneer that anybody can participate that enables this to really go into hyperdrive and have, you know, tens of thousands of people making videos and playlists and composing their own songs and putting them up online, even if it's only for people who are already part of that particular partisan group. We're going to take a short break for now, but then we'll be back via Skype with Justin Patch, Matt Jordan, and James DeVille to continue our discussion on populism and the 2016 presidential campaign. Tuning in, we are in the studio via Skype with Justin Patch, Matt Jordan, and James DeVille discussing populism on the 2016 presidential campaign trail. And now Matt has a question for Justin. Hearing Justin's essay, it was, I was drawn by a particular uh, assertion that he made in it, which is uh, taken from the social theorist Jacques Attali, uh, who mentions that popular music has become something like a monologue of power in the contemporary age, that the kind of ubiquity that we hear in popular music reflects uh, a kind of the powerful in society kind of deciding what it's going to be. And I think Justin's on to something here. And uh, so I wanted to just get him to reflect on whether the repetitive nature and ubiquitousness of the music that's used in campaigns, and we do see a kind of similarity between 2008, 2012, 2016, 
whether it's worth thinking about the implications of a kind of monologue of music in a way, a kind of ubiquitousness of the music. So in the same way that classic rock stations uh, will play the same uh, rotation depending on their demographics, say the classic rock, you know, if you tune in any moment, you're going to hear Boston every 15 minutes or a Rush song, uh, you know, it's a very standardized monologue. Or that the top 40 stations play whatever rotation they've been given to plug the same 10 songs, essentially. So do you think that the ubiquity of the campaign music tells us something about a, a similar sameness of, uh, of, uh, of a structure of power in America, as if we could say that there's some kind of power block back there that's using these ready-made songs and the known affect of these, especially like the Neil Young, uh, Rockin' in the Free World, or songs that have been around forever that, you know, they know what the effect on the audience is going to be. Um, do you think that they're using these to extract something like the consent of the governed? And it, it makes me wonder, just by way of the sociologist Theodore Adorno, who famously wrote a lot of things that were very pessimistic about pop culture, he uh, thought that one of the ways that pop music works is by getting us to think that we're asserting our individualness or our individual choice when we kind of consume one of these channels or or one of these songs but in actuality what we're really doing is we're merely kind of connecting with the latest pop star who serves as the face to a big kind of culture machine out there that's cranking out the hits right so we think we're uh, kind of participating in something that's very human but actually it's very uh, standardized and ubiquitous so do we see something similar now in mass media politics which is using pop music in a similar way to have a kind of ready-made a kind of populist aesthetic, um, and especially I would say in an era when mass media political culture has effectively become a very profitable popular culture. All right, so a lot to unpack here again. So the first thing that comes to mind is that you have the idea at the top now, which is you know famously Theodore Adorno's thing about popular culture is that the powerful basically feeding consumers what they want them to feel and to think and to identify with. And the other half of that sort of social equation is a sort of Stuart Hall, Birmingham school, where he really tries to insist that not all consumers consume alike and not all consumers follow the pathways that producers want them to follow, right? So these, this, these are the two big conflicts with popular music. And what I think politics does with this is that it exploits both of these with equal ability. So in your essay, the Obama's iPod, you bring up uh, Ernesto Laclau's uh, idea of the empty signifier. And the empty signifier is something that anybody can read their story into. And the, the ultimate empty signifier that I can think of for political music is uh, Brooks and Dunn's Only in America. Right. And it's it's a it's three little very country vignettes about the American dream, more or less. Right. And in 2004, George W. Bush uses it. 2008, Barack Obama uses it. And then it's popped back up in 2012 and 2016 as well. And that to me is almost the, the, the perfect example of top down sideways use of this music that people can identify with in a bunch of different ways. And I think that's what makes popular music popular is that people can read into it whatever they want. If they want to see themselves in it, if they want to identify with it, then they will. They will absolutely find a way to put themselves into whatever scenario is being put in the song, right? And so that's sort of where I see politics using music. And I think a lot of this comes from the ubiquity of particular types of music to where even if, you know, you think about uh, Bernie Sanders and the demographic that goes to see Bernie Sanders, uh, typically like 18 to 29 are the people that he really is dug in deep with. And somehow almost all of them know the Simon and Garfunkel song, America, right? Seems a little bit odd that, that a, a, a song that was put out in what, 19, 
67 or 68 is something that 18 to 29-year-olds would know. And I think that speaks to basically the, the ways in which technology and policy uh, and politics all interact. When we look at you know, policy with, with um, famously Clear Channel and the idea that you can basically standardize a playlist across the country, and we see the standardization of you know, classic rock playlists and pop playlists and country playlists all over the country. And so you have a repetitiveness that builds in affect to where political campaigns are able to just step right in there and give people the semblance of recognition. And if we go back to Aristotle, right, the highest form of beauty is recognition. Well, when somebody recognizes themselves culturally in a political campaign, it's a very powerful thing. That's incredibly powerful. And, and it becomes a self-perpetuating mechanism whereby you have this repetitiveness of popular music that people become attached to. And then political campaigns are able to sort of grab onto them and take that sort of affective connection right away. So going back to what you said a moment ago about people having this, you know, people recognizing themselves in the music, but that's not really the case in a lot of ways in terms of the age demographic that you're speaking about in relation to Sanders uh, and some of the kinds of music that he's used on the campaign trail. I mean, he's used Guthrie's This Land Is Your Land. He's used Simon and Garfunkel's America. He's used music from girl groups of the 60s. So it's like he's establishing this type of nostalgia in his campaign soundtrack, but that's not really the soundtrack of the primary uh, group that is attending his events. So I'm wondering, you know, what you make of that. I mean, I guess as I see it, songs that were about sort of, you know, rebelling against authority and have sort of themes of, of, of re- revolution and, uh, you know, just general you know, public's discontent that, you know, when that's filtered through the lens of nostalgia, any sort of radical ideology that's in there to a certain extent becomes neutralized. I mean, would you agree with that? I, I do agree with the neutralization effect, but what I think we see with Sanders is kind of the brilliance of authenticity. If I can contrast Sanders and Obama and Bush with Clinton, is that one of the things that people felt about the latter three that they don't feel about Clinton is that she's authentic, which is weird. I don't know how somebody is not authentic to themselves, but when when Hillary Clinton plays Katy Perry, it seems very contrived because nobody actually believes that Hillary Clinton was rocking out to Katy Perry in her free time, where you believe that George W. Bush listened to Nashville sort of pop radio. You believe that Obama had the blueprint on his iPod. And with Sanders, what you see is that like he is able to find music like the girl groups, like Simon and Garfunkel, like Woody Guthrie, that you believe that he likes. Obviously, like he recorded some of Woody Guthrie songs on his terrible spoken word CD. But... It wasn't terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we'll agree you... to disagree. Go on. Yes. You, but you believe that he actually likes these songs. But he's picking songs that younger folks recognize. So it's like you get the best of both worlds. You get a song that your demographic recognizes and has an affective connection to many of them through their parents. Like um, my students this year, my freshmen, we we had a class about the 2016 election, and they knew all these old songs that Sanders would play. And all of them said, you know, that stuff my mom and dad listened to, or in some cases, that stuff my grandparents listened to. Right. So you have this sort of built-in affective connection with that. And the added benefit that Sanders seems authentic in this particular usage. Right. And I do think that's a really important point to mention. Um, You know, in 2008, you know, Hillary Clinton really was lambasted in the press for exactly what you're talking about, this sort of musical pandering, Um, you know, this idea that, 
you know, I think candidates pick a certain playlist because they want to cater to the interests of their public. But, you know, if there's that suspicion that the candidate themselves really has no interest or sort of no cultural knowledge uh, of that music, uh, they are often criticized for it. And we saw it in that famous Bernie versus Hillary meme where, uh, you know, it will say something like jazz or it would say Radiohead. And, you know, Bernie Sanders would give a very sort of thoughtful response that, you know, displays a certain depth of knowledge, whereas Hillary Clinton's answer would be more simplistic, more what people would expect to hear. So you also see sort of these accusations of pandering sort of working themselves out in other media as well. So I think you're you're absolutely right about that, that it's certainly authenticity in terms of speaking to a certain demographic, but that also sort of promoting a certain uh, authentic construction of the self uh, certainly weighs in. And it does seem it, Clinton seems to be criticized uh, more so uh, than than other candidates for, for this exact thing. Yeah, I mean, and, and Matt has a really beautiful passages in his article on Obama's iPod about the cultural identification with the candidate. I mean, Matt, if you want to expand a little bit on this one. I, I would uh, I would just add, to th- was, you know, thinking about uh, Dana talking about the nostalgia factor. And I think this nostalgia is one of the ways in which populist identification works. So I'll just ask you to kind of think about the structural similarities in this sense with Donald Trump, who is arguing for a different type of, of populism. So we have the Sanders populism, which is this heterogeneous populism of inclusion of all types of different people. And we have the Trump homogenous populism, where the America as a homogenous white people place is threatened by some kind of internal problem. So it's a negative populism that's kind of drawing people together to protect America. But both of them seem to have a nostalgia in it. So, uh, uh, you know, think about Trump's uh, slogan that he puts on his uh, hats, make America great again, right? It's a perfect nostalgia for an empty signifier, uh, America, and an un- a time of unreflected fullness, right? Um, when America was great. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I think, is similarly trying to return America to a time when things were well. But I think you, if you think about their different times, I think Trump's is... Uh, pre-civil rights America, pre-political correctness America, where white people could be white people and it would just okay. And I think Bernie Sanders's time of nostalgia is for the civil rights era, right? This is a part of his authenticity is that he hasn't changed since he got arrested for sitting in with the civil rights marches. So both are are kind of animating a certain type of nostalgic identification with it that's tied to their authenticity. Trump, no matter what you can say about him, is he has no filter, right? He just, he's authentically braggadocio. He's authentically boorish. And Sanders, as the copy on him, is it's always, he, he doesn't change, right? He's the same as he's always been. And I think you're right to say that the problem that Hillary Clinton is having creating a populist uh, identification with her is that she seemingly changes every time there's a new focus group demographic that comes out. So we don't know what her grounding is in the same way as those other two. So she can't really link to the people in that way. But I think this is why she's not running a populist campaign. She's running as a technocrat. She's running as somebody who's going to offer rational solutions in a way. And, you know, what remains to be seen is whether that will be able to create enough of an identification with people. I mean, the identification she has with people right now is She's going to protect them from the boogeyman, you know, from Trump. What about uh, Sanders' apparent inability to connect with people of his own age group? Um, is there, uh, am I correct in, in reading it that way? And then what is the reason for that, do you think? I would say it has something to do with the fact that people of his own age remember the civil rights time as maybe not so great, whereas the younger generation, when they hear the word kind of revolution there it's an empty signifier to them they don't remember this the civil turmoil that was caused during that time so it's easier i think for them to identify with this turning the, the clock back to that time whereas i i think his own generation has lost that love and feeling for that time or at least fewer of them seem to have it i mean if you look at baby boomer identification a lot of them started very left and are no longer very left so i think that's the trouble he's having He's asking for a, a generation that, you know, in terms of their consumptive pattern, seems to gravitate toward, towards things that are safe, they're more risk averse. He's asking them to 
embrace the idea of revolution. And, and from a marketing standpoint, uh, that doesn't work. We need to close here, but this has all been really fascinating. And we truly appreciate you sharing your insight with Tracks on the Trail. Keep an eye out for Justin's article on our website. Once again, I would like to thank Justin Patch, Adjunct Assistant Professor of Music at Vassar College, Matthew Jordan, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Video, and Media Studies at Penn State University, and James DeVille, Professor of Music at Carleton University and co-editor of Tracks on the Trail for joining us in the studio today via Skype. This is Dana gorzalani Mostak for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. Tracks on the Trail Nice to meet you, I'm Bernard, been on point for half a century. Staying honest, going hard, in the paint for us, but now we must answer the call. I know this process goggles huge soul, I think it needs a huge overhaul, when middle class families can't afford you alls. Thieving, lying, waging war, these are what your other options do. Being giant Wall Street whores Using fear to keep us locked in tombs of greed Worry and rent Maybe just maybe they fear my ascent And all our taxes being well spent Cause baby I'm a nightmare for the one percent Will we get the nomination? Or will we go down in flames? You just heard a Bernie Sanders inspired parody Of Taylor Swift's hit song Blank Space Created by The Nonsense Man in the song, we hear the speaker perfectly captures Sanders' accent, vocal inflections, and cadence. But while the performer occasionally spouts the senator from Vermont's key catchphrases, crass language and bravado preempt the real candidate's dignified locution and Swift's flowery lyrics. In the nonsense man's fictive, what Sanders is really thinking narrative, Bernie and the 1%, referred to in the song as giant Wall Street whores, stand in for Swift and her Playboy Flavor of the Month. While Swift's original illustrates the fickle nature of love, the voice of Bernie Sanders in the parody muses over the fickleness of the American electorate. I'm a nightmare for the 1%. Will we get the nomination? Or will we go down in flames? Could this be a revolution? Or another little passing face? Either way, when come November... Bernie's imagined American utopia becomes a stand-in for Swift's ephemeral fairy tale relationship. As Hillary Clinton was declared the presumptive nominee, it seems the Sanders campaign, like Swift's love affair, has gone down in flames. Either way, when come November, do not recoil in shame. There will be a blank space, baby. And please write my name. Are we dumb and defenseless? Yet the song remains and stands as material evidence of the ways in which constituents map their critique of candidates and commentary on the state of American politics onto popular texts in the digital age. Indeed, this song captures where we are in the campaign so far, musically, that is. While it is true all candidates likely imagine the ballot as a blank space where the voters might write their names, Presidential hopefuls and constituents have treated pop songs, or parodies based on pop songs, as analogous blank spaces, or polemcists, where they might document their own perception of the electoral process or even inscribe their own vision of what it means to be truly American. This is Dana Gorzlani Mostak for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. That is what I'm pretty sure I do. Shunning everything that sucks since the dawn of time, but now we're here. Proven and strong, do not mess this up, that would be wrong. Sharing my memes and sharing this song, remembering the date that you vote for me on. Will we get the nomination, or will we go down in flames? Could this be a revolution, or another little passing face? Either way, when come November, do not recoil in shame. The Tracks on the Trail podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia College Department of Music and WRGC 88.3 FM. Tracks on the Trail was created by Dana Gorzelani-Mostak and co-edited by James DeVille. Sarah Kitts, Cannon McLean, Sarah Farmer, and Andrew Spruill provide research assistance. Victoriana Lord provides support for the TracksOnTheTrail.com website. Track's social media is coordinated by Sam Campbell. 
The Tracks on the Trail theme was composed and performed by yours truly, Cannon McLean, with additional vocals from Ryan Sokolowski. Morgan Mendez mixed and edited the theme. Today's program was edited by Daniel McDonald. You can visit us anytime at tracksonthetrail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and listen out for more on soundcloud.com slash WRGC. Do not recoil in shame. There will be a blank space, baby. Please write my name. Are we dumb and defenseless? Or do we have some heart? Will we let the 1% win? Or take back what is ours? Either way, when come November, do not recoil in shame. There will be a blank space, baby. Please write your name.